0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli here today with Kevin Day, Esquire, one of the leading estate planning and international asset protection attorneys in the United States and president of Day & Associates. Kevin is also author of several books in the area of international trust and estate planning and a frequent speaker at business conferences. In today's episode, we discuss asset protection and estate planning strategies, including revocable living trusts, Family limited partnerships, we touch on the differences between LLCs and LLPs, irrevocable trusts, and so much more. Before we jump right into today's episode, we want to remind you about our virtual workshops. They are not a webinar, but rather, our virtual workshops are a highly interactive experience that puts you in a room with our tax strategists as well as fellow real estate investors. We will discuss a topic for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then open the room up for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to those real estate tax and accounting questions that you've been dying to ask, while at the same time discovering what other real estate investors are asking. You could sign up for our virtual workshops by visiting therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual-workshop, or by following the link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Kevin, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little information on your background and what your business does today?
2: Yes. My background, I have an MBA, my undergraduates in Chinese studies, my MBA is international business, and I'm a trust lawyer. Particularly our law firm, Trest Day and Associates, is really at the forefront of lawsuit protection. I wrote a bunch of books in the very early 90s, right after the uh, Hague Convention was signed by the US that allowed offshore trusts to be used and recognized under US law. So, our firm uh, has been at the forefront of lawsuit protection planning and privacy from the very beginning. Uh, I'd also like to, uh, for a moment, introduce one of our key players. This is Attorney Bridget Burns and she's actually the head of our asset protection department. And she has six or more years of litigation experience and then came over to this. So she's unique. Most practitioners that are drafters don't see the courtroom and the courtroom doesn't draft. And so having her experience plus being honors out of New York University School of Law, is a pretty powerful part of our team here. And so anybody that ends up working with us will be uh, working with Attorney Burns as well as me.
0: That's great to hear. So all of our clients uh, are real estate investors in some way, shape, or form. And many clients that we work with ask about estate planning. Would you be able to give our listeners a brief overview of what estate planning is and why they would need an estate plan?
2: Yeah. Uh, So we're all on that conveyor belt. We're all going to die at some point. Uh, It's really bad being an estate planner. We get really jaded about death, but it is reality. So the question is, we don't know. We hope that we're going to have a nice long life, but we don't know if we're going to be hit by the proverbial bus tomorrow. Uh, If you don't have an estate plan, some lawyer is going to get four to six or seven percent of your estate for doing a probe. You want to avoid probate because of the time and the cost of it. So having the basics of an estate plan allows you to control how your assets are going to your heirs, and it reduces the cost significantly. You know, having a three thousand dollar living trust versus you know twenty six thousand for a small estate. You know, do the numbers. If you know, if you're six hundred thousand dollar estate, what is four percent of it at a minimum? If you hear that, you go, 3000 is nothing to get more money down to my children or my heirs. So you want to do it sooner than later. If you have children, in my opinion, even if uh, I'm a real estate investor too, I've got tons of clients from syndication down to mom and pops. The most important thing about estate planning, I know that we're... Weighing our budgets and allocations. But if you have children, you don't want the court deciding who's going to care for your children because it might be the family member that has the biggest house and has extra rooms when you really want to choose somebody else that is more philosophically attuned to what you and your spouse want for your children. So that's one of the biggest motivators there. If you don't have children yet and you have limited funds, you probably want to do the real estate planning before estate planning, just because you have to balance everything. And Absolutely. we can do that with the clients and lead them through evaluations and priorities.
0: That makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the the state plans that I often see clients, sometimes they come to us already having, um, you know, we've done research on, of course, is revocable living trusts. Can, you know, Would you be able to give our listeners a little overview of the benefits of using one of those?
2: Yeah, a revocable living trust. Is essentially where you set up a trust in advance of your demise and you name yourself as the first trustee and the first uh, beneficiary. So it's all you, you, and you. And then you say, if I'm incapacitated or if I die, then these other people have powers over my wealth and the instructions for distribution and separate documents for the care of children, guardianship provisions. So it really is intending to make a dormant irrevocable trust. It doesn't become irrevocable until you died, and that's the revocability means it's changeable. So if you say, oh, I'm going to have all these restrictions because my kids are, you know, three and five, I don't know how responsible and smart they're going to be. And then as they get into college, you go, wow, you know, Billy's an idiot and Sally is really smart. So we need to put restrictions on Billy, but lessen the restrictions on Sally. Then Sally gets married to an idiot. And so we want to put (laughs) divorce proofing provisions. And as long as you're alive, you can continue to change things from day to day. So it's very flexible. But it keeps it out of probate court, so you save a lot of money.
0: Got it, got it. And from a tax perspective, for everybody listening out there, that uh, the revocable trusts are generally reported on, uh, you know, are disregarded for tax purposes and are reported directly onto your ten forty. Uh, so it's necessarily a tax advantage, at least while you're alive, to to having these to using one of those.
2: In that regard, you're probably too young. I'm starting to get gray. Um, We used to give, everybody gave separate tax ID numbers to revocable living trusts. And finally, the IRS said, stop it, because we think that they're more like the old fashioned traditional irrevocable trust if you give it a a separate TIN. So just use the social security number of the person. So there's still disregarded entities that we have to have a TIN, but no longer with the uh, revocable living trust. It's that germane to being a pass-through. Do these trusts
0: offer any type of asset protection?
2: No. And this is a common misperception with people because irrevocable trusts go back to the 10th century. Revocable living trusts were kind of invented in the 1930s. And everybody, even if they have no business education, much less legal education, somehow through the vapors, they know that trusts are uh, lawsuit proof. And it's because of this long history of never having an irrevocable trust. And so people say, oh, I have a revocable living trust. So I have some lawsuit protection. And it's not true for two reasons. One is that it is revocable so you can change it so if you had a revocable trust where you did not name yourself as a beneficiary or trustee because it's revocable you can bring it back to yourself therefore not lawsuit protection the traditional setup of course because it's for estate planning you have named yourself as both the trustee with control and the beneficiary and you've merged the two types of ownership so there's several different reasons why they're not lawsuit protected, but they're really important to avoid probate. You get more money down to your children. So is the primary benefit then
1: just avoiding probate? Do you get any anonymity protection at all? or
2: Not in the traditional revocable living trust. It can be configured that way. We do have privacy trusts. We have real estate holding trusts. Originally referred to as Illinois Land Trust because that 's where they were first litigated as not being real trusts, and the court found that they were so there 's other mechanisms for anonymity, a revocable living trust could be used for that, but traditionally it 's not
1: interesting so since they don 't offer any asset protection, how do you give folks asset protection while still benefiting from the usage of trusts
2: yeah. We usually employ what uh, Bridget Burns calls a dual estate plan or a shadow estate plan. So one of the books, I, I wrote five books on offshore money strategies, offshore trusts, and so forth. And one of my books was on privacy. And I'll say it kindly. Uh, privacy freaks came out of the woodwork, and they said, "I don't want my name on anything. I don't want it on my car registration. Not one piece of property. I don't want anything." And I said, "That is as a big a red flag to a litigator as driving your Bentley and having a bunch of gold chains on you. If your name doesn't come up anywhere, and you don't look homeless." That tells the litigator, this must have billions of dollars at the end of the rainbow. This guy or gal, were able to hire experts to hide them. So let's take our time and dig before they even know we're going to sue them. So
1: they're going to dig really
2: deep to try to uncover everything as a result. Yes. And you don't even know that they're gunning for you yet. So oh, we want everybody to look normal. The American dream. They have their home their business, unless they're W-2, and their cars. Then we're going to have a separate irrevocable trust or a family-limited partnership or the combination, depending on objectives, and put their rentals away from them. Or we can also employ equity stripping, have an irrevocable trust with a funding company that puts senior liens on things. So Bank of America's on first, Golden Mountain Funding of Wyoming or Nevada's on second. So That the things, including your home, if your home has Union Bank on first and Golden Mountain funding on second, the lawyer says, oh, they look normal, they own their stuff, and they're living the normal American dream. They are upside down cash-wise. That's not a good lawsuit. I'm not going to assume They don't have anything. And in fact, you have two apartment complexes and 17 single-family residences that they don't even see in your name. So it's this dual strategy that's the most effective. Many people can't employ that, but we can build a roadmap that builds the pieces for those people on more limited uh, budgets so that they build in the right direction.
1: So how do you utilize like LLCs in combination with trusts?
2: LLCs can be owned. As a, typically, depending on what the LLC is doing, we categorize assets. When we're doing an analysis, we put it in assets in three categories, high liability assets, zero liability assets like cash and portfolio and stuff in the middle that is high liability, but also high value, real estate. High value, but also has high liability. You have tenants. You might have. You might be an absentee uh, owner. You have managers. You don't exactly know what they're doing. So we categorize that and the client's priorities to try to create the right thing. So an LLC might be one hundred percent owned by a lawsuit-proof trust, either offshore or domestically. But our client is the manager. So they have the checkbook, they have all the control, but they're legally not the owner. And lawsuit protection really boils down to ownership. If you aren't the owner, it can't be taken, even if you control it. And being a manager of an LLC imputes no ownership. The law is very clear on that. And we just need to establish that there's some other owner, and it's not, they don't want me to own it, because you know if they die, then my kids might get their assets. Irrevocable trusts are powerful because they are a closed universe. They're an ultimate owner. The client doesn't own them. They are the owner. And it can have them and their family as beneficiaries. So it's a perfect instrument. They're not very user friendly, though. Uh, Nobody, no entrepreneur wants to go like a Kennedy grandchild and go to the trustee and say, give me some money, or I want to buy that property and sell that property. So that's why we combine them with LLCs or family limited partnerships to give back the control to the client, but not have them be the owner at all, or have limited a uh, very small percentage of ownership. So very little is at risk.
0: Yeah. So this kind of leads into a good segue here for family limited partnerships. Um, so a lot of our clients either ask about these or they're using them themselves. Would you be able to give our listeners a little bit of an overview of what a family limited partnership is?
2: Yeah. Just like all corporations are C-corporations, you have to elect B&S. Limited partnerships are a limited partnership under the law. The family designation actually is a marketing term, but it's actually useful to the client. It means that the general partner has usually dictatorial control, much more control than in a business partnership. So a limited partnership Uh, Any partnership requires at least two people. And in a business partnership, usually the general partner is taking all the liability, typically has business skills. And then there's an investor that says, I want to pluck money in here, but I want limited liability. If something goes wrong, I want to prove I had no control and therefore none of my personal assets are uh, saleable. But I want to be able to fire a general if they're doing a poor job. But if you're mom and dad and you're starting to gift assets to children or you're putting assets into a trust, you want, that's a perfect formula. You can have only 1% as general partner and 99% owned by your children or by a lawsuit proof trust. And the children or the trustee have Zero control, because the whole aspect of the the limited partnership is limited partners have no right to management and control. They can have 99% ownership, but they still don't have control. So it's a perfect instrument for parents to gift to children in a way and the family designation means that it's really written dictatorially so the children can't fire them, where in a business-limited partnership, you want mechanisms to be able to fire a bad general partner. So it's a great way to transfer, but assure that you'll have control for the rest of your life or turn over these assets.
0: Okay. So I think for a lot of these strategies, it seems like in the estate planning world, it really, and I think you mentioned this before, it really starts to make sense to use these type of things once you have children. Or I guess, you know, maybe perhaps even maybe if you don't have children, maybe even once you have perhaps decent nephews, is that is that something that maybe
2: um, children are more likely. We will usually recommend that you use an irrevocable trust for your children or if you don't have children, an irrevocable trust for you, because in our legal system, as we mentioned before, in our legal system, there's only two ultimate owners. Corporations, limited partnerships, LLCs are a separate legal person under the law, under the tax code. They're separate legal people from you. You need to treat your own company as if, you know, Brandon Hall owns it. You have to have contracts with yourself. The law requires it, the corporations code requires it, the IRS requires it. But they are not ultimate owners. They have to have an owner, shareholder, or member. And A corp can be owned by an LLC that's owned by an FLP that's owned by a corp, 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 corp. It won't end until it hits one of two things in our legal system, a human or an irrevocable trust. So nobody owns you, Thomas, and nobody owns an irrevocable trust. That's why they're lawsuit proof. So if you're gifting to children, we would recommend that you gift it through an irrevocable. If they're older and mature and you know who they are and who their spouses are, you can gift directly to them. You save some money. But we would recommend gifting to an irrevocable trust because then they don't really have the ownership. So it is lawsuit proof from their bad car accident. It is divorce proof from their future ex-husband or wife. You can put those controls. You can give them full access to make them happy, but keep it divorce proof and lawsuit proof. The other thing is, let's say if you, Thomas and Brandon were my two sons and I set up a family limited partnership and gifted you, I keep 2% and I give you 48% each, whatever the math is. (laughs) That's why I'm not an accountant. Um, So I give both of you the 48% each And uh, I have real estate, and I also have a cash portfolio. If I gave you the cash portfolio, Disney stock, it's all Disney stock. You can go out and sell it for what it's trading with tomorrow. But if I put that Disney stock in an FLP and then gift you each the 48%, you can go out and you own it now. You can go out and sell it to somebody. You could sell it to Bridget. Bridget's not going to buy it for its fair market value because she has to wait for dad to die. So she might buy it for 60% on the dollar. Now I have a new partner that I might not like, and that wasn't my intent to you. That's where tax value discounts come from, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but. Because it's not restricted, because I gifted it to you, you own it, and somebody else doesn't, they want Disney stock, they don't want the limited partnership, it still has value. So by me putting it into an irrevocable trust for the both of you, then you can't sell it. And it retains its value and grows over time so that we create uh, essentially an estate freeze, which we should talk about too. (laughs) Tax value discounts and uh, they're they're powerful.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, from my understanding, I, I from when I heard about family limited partnerships, this is exactly what you just said. Because there's a discounted value, because there's no saleable market for it, because you have to wait for the parents to presumably die to use it, you can start gifting these to your child or to the local trust, get them out of your state for the purpose of the estate and gift planning tax. That's currently at, I think
2: absolutely twenty million. Yeah. So the one aspect is the lack of control and transferability. So that gives you a a tax value discount. So I'll just use an example that I might have an apartment building that's worth a million dollars, but I will only use 700,000 of my gift tax exemption because I'm transferring it to my children through a family limited partnership. So it allows me to gift more, and still have more gift tax exemption left over. The other thing is an estate freeze. Uh, you right now; we're at 11 million, but it's got a sunset on it, and because of current politics, it will most likely be going back down to 5,000. What year is that? 2020, 2025. So we have to do planning right now with that presumption that that automatic reversion to 5 million. So we have plenty of people that are, you know, husband and wife, they have a $6 million estate, or let's say just a single parent, they have a $6 million estate and they're 45, they're going to have a major tax issue. So what we want to do right now is take apartments, get appraisals on them when they're at lower value and put those in an FLP to get as much out of the estate so they might keep enough to live on personally plus their general partnership interest to live on but let's just take that six million dollars a single person two kids they would keep their home and some other assets worth three million but take the things that would most likely appreciate 3 million and gift it to the children right now, that's called an estate freeze because from that point on, they can control it. They can pay themselves as a general partner. They can buy and sell when they want. They only have 1% general partnership interest. And that other 99% for the next, you know, until they're 80 and die grows in the children's name. They just, you know, got $10 million down to the kids by transferring three through a family limited partnership that they could still control and access some of the funds reasonably.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting strategy to get around the estate gift limitation there. And in case folks that are listening aren't really aware of what all that is, basically the I'm calling it the wrong thing, but the estate gift limitation jumped up to $10 million as a result of the 2018 Tax Custom Jobs Act. So like Kevin was saying, it's going to revert. In 2025, it's expected to revert unless there's some sort of policy changes or regulatory changes that extend it. So what we're telling all of our clients is now's a good time to go ahead and die. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Save money, transfer your estate, right? But most people aren't going to, and then they'll be past 2025. So that's good that you guys are already planning ahead of that. I guess one of my questions is on the family limited partnership. So the valuation there, you used the example of a million-dollar apartment building and when you're transferring it to your children, it might be 700K because it's in a family and limited partnership, because there's no market for these types of assets or, or these types of um, family and limited partnership interests. Who's coming up with that value? What are you doing to value that at $7 million? How do you determine that the value is $700,000 versus a
2: million dollars? Uh, we usually do not, uh, we do have a, a, a tax attorney here in the office, but we usually leave it up to the client's regular CPAs, because it's going to be a mix of different things. Somebody who's 94, you know, we're talking about the Strangi case and the Kimball case uh, from the 2003, uh, somebody that was 93 or whatever they were transferred, you know, at at an advanced age, the IRS obviously didn't like that. And the Strangi case came up against the taxpayer. Uh, There was a later case, Kimball, a few years later, 2005, that was back to the taxpayer's side. But we don't want our clients to be the one that likely to get audited. So we want to be responsible and reasonable. If somebody's very young, they can be more aggressive. If they're older, either they're going to be getting a smaller tax value discount. You know, it might be 10% or something like that. Um, You can still be uh, 40% is going to be aggressive, but there might be uh, reasons to be able to calculate it up to a 40%. So somewhere in that range, is going to relate to what kind of restrictions, what age the client is that's making the gift, an assortment of different things. But it's in that range, depending on a, a variety of things.
0: Got it, guys. So you know, after going through all of this, all this, um, these, these kind of strategies, this may seem very elementary, but you know, we get this question a lot: is how much asset protection does a single member LLC offer, assuming it's operated
2: correctly? A single member LLC yes yeah that's going to relate so you can't have a single member lp obviously because Mm. a partnership you need at least two but an irrevocable trust is a second party and that's why people without children can have one percent for a husband and wife and put the 98 percent in an irrevocable trust and that's a valid uh, limited partnership single member llcs are going to relate to the state in which Uh, you are and the LLC is and the properties. So single member LLCs are protected in uh, fewer states, but because of the U.S. Constitution, fair faith and credit between the states, we're allowed to use the trust law and the company's law and the LLC laws of other states. But if, let's say, in California, where we don't respect a single member LLC, And I have a Nevada LLC that does protect and has full charging order, which we should talk about in a moment, protection over that asset. If I'm holding California property and I registered that LLC in California, that means I'm submitting to California law. So I'm not going to get that charging order protection. But uh, if I use, uh, I've got property that's in Georgia, Arkansas, in New York, and I'm using an FLP from a state that does have single member charging order protection. And I get sued by somebody in California. I'm going to, it's not registered here. It's got the protection. You're going to have to sue in the court where that LLC is a citizen and those courts are going to protect it. So it does have protection depending on where the investments are and where the client is. So you mentioned
1: that California doesn't, um, you you didn't say recognize, right? California doesn't respect. Is that what you said? What was the word that you used? In the law,
2: we do not have a single member uh, protection for charging order.
1: Got it. Got it. So you can set up a single member LLC in California, right? Yes. And so the issue with that is just that there's no charging order protection. So Really, it's not super beneficial to set up a single-member LLC in California. Am I getting that right?
2: Correct. And that's where we would bring in a little domestic irrevocable trust to protect the lion's share of an asset and have the client be the beneficiary. So they have all the beneficial ownership, but they only have 1% technical ownership.
1: So why wouldn't I just say, let's forget about the trust and let's just go straight to Nevada, set up a single member LLC there, even though I live in California. What are the, what are the implications of that? Why wouldn't I do that?
2: Well, it's where, the, where is the LLC doing business? It is doing business in California. The law requires registering as a foreign company doing business here. And what that registration means is that that LLC will be treated as a California LLC, not a Nevada LLC.
1: Got it. So even though it's a Nevada LLC set up as a foreign LLC in California, it becomes a California LLC with, I'm assuming within the borders of California or within the, where it's doing business in California. Correct. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. That's good. That's yeah. See, so (laughs) speak with an eligible attorney. So what you're saying is it's very state by state basically.
2: Yes. (laughs) Okay. And, but because of fair faith and credit, we can use uh, more powerful jurisdictions than maybe where you're resident because your real estate investments aren't in your home state, for instance. So we can get full charging order of a single member LLC.
1: Now, when you set up an LLC, either in California or outside of a California and you're doing business in California, you're subject to that minimum $800 tax, uh, Mm -hmm. franchise tax. Do you have any like just off-the-cuff, high-level ideas on how people can avoid that if they're living in California, doing business in California? Is there anything they can do? We've heard DSTs, different sort of trust structures. Yeah. Anything like-
2: um, irrevocable trusts are a good answer, okay. but for them to be functional and be lawsuit-proof, a trust doesn't have that registration because it's common law. It is not statutory, but you'd have to have a real trusted person as trustee. Uh, so whoever's setting up the trust wants to be the beneficiary. So if I'm going to buy some real estate, I want it to be lawsuit proof. I want me to have all access to it. I'm going to set up an irrevocable trust naming myself as beneficiary, but to have it lawsuit proof, I can't be the trustee. So I have to have my sister or a parent. What about uh, a spouse? Spouse uh usually won't work. Spouses are usually determined as one party unless you do a lot to keep separated, meaning that you file separate taxes, you have a post or pre-nup, which our firm also does. So that can be set up, but most people don't want that headache. So It can be a trusted friend. It can be somebody in-house. I've had many people that say, hey, I've got an in-house CPA or an in-house attorney. They know everything about me. I don't have any hidden things from them. And I've trusted them with all my financials. I can make them trustee as long as I can fire them. So in any of those cases, whether it's your brother-in-law, sister, or a trusted employee, we would always put provisions that the settler can hire and fire the trustee without cause so if somebody goes left or they leave you or you they get an aneurysm and they become a different personality you don't trust them anymore you used to trust them you can fire them and appoint somebody else and then you avoid the 800 hundred dollar franchise tax you are giving up a little bit of control it can freak people out a little bit but other some people do have really trusted friends and I said, as long as I can fire them, I'm great with that.
1: <laughs> but they- the Fire component would be big. I know my buddies, would; they would all go left and I'd be trying to go right. <laughs> so that, that's good. So, so really to get around that and still maintain control and get the asset protection, to get around the $800 fee, you're, you're talking irrevocable trust where you are not the trustee. Correct. Okay. Very interesting. Very good stuff. Yeah, because we, we have a ton of people that always ask us about that. How can I avoid the $800 fee? And we say, hey, we're not attorneys. Uh, we just file the forms. <laughs> yeah. We'll help you on the tax strategy piece. And that is an attorney question. So you need to go. But go, that's good. That's good. Now I have an answer that I can give people roughly. And I'll tell them to come contact you. Very good. All right. So what what is kind of the key difference between LLPs and LLCs?
2: Ah, that's a great one. So uh, limited partnerships are much older. And it was originally a business tool that we described at the very beginning of the podcast where the general partner usually had the business skills, uh, usually already lawsuit proof themselves, and had less to lose. And then they would get investors that had no right to management and control in exchange for having zero liability outside their investment. By the very terms of the limited partnership, they had no right to management and control. An LLC was invented after the DMVHs from Germany. And CPAs usually refer to them as partnerships. They're just high-fangled partnerships where you could reallocate the tax responsibility where the uh, limited partnership, if you have 1% or 10% or 5%, you have that percent responsibility. These LLCs were invented in the, early 90s out of the oil shale investments, the uh, shell oil and uh, you know Sinclair and Phillips and all those people wanted to do projects together. And they wanted to have the tax allocation versus the write-offs be not equivalent to the percentage ownership they had. And so they were able to play tax games. So they're very powerful in a business environment that's very lucrative and complex. So if the three of us were partners, equal partners on an LLC, I might say, hey, I need a bunch of lost carry forwards this year from other things. Let me take all of that this year or I'll make it up in the future years and vice versa. Um, down to our folks, most of our people are using these mechanisms for their, their half business and half uh, estate planning. If you use an LLC and gift it to your heirs, even though they technically aren't the managing member, they do have a legal right to management and control, unlike the limited partnership. So they can go into court and say, hey, my mom and dad, who's the general partner, they used to be really sharp, but they're kind of addled now. And so we want to remove them. We want to have some say, or not remove them, but we want equal rights and say. So the object is control, unlimited control, even though you have 1%, whether you're gifting it to an irrevocable trust, and you want to make sure that you control the trustee so they have no right their hands are tied, or your children, the LP is stronger.
1: The LLP is stronger or the LLC is stronger?
2: The family limited partnership or any of the limited partnerships are much stronger for control because the limiteds absolutely have no legal right to management and control, where members of an LLC always have a right to control, even though they might have given it up through some other document, they could go into court and challenge that.
1: Interesting. So, you know, we see a lot of uh, syndicates and funds using LLC structures. We rarely ever see LLPs. In the LLC structures, they will define membership units as general partner, class A or B or or however they classify them. And the other units will be the opposite. Um, They'll be the limited partners, essentially and they won't have any voting rights or control. Are they essentially trying to structure the same thing, but with a different entity?
2: They are, but the LLC has so much more flexibility tax-wise. It is the right instrument for syndications and other kinds of investments. I really see the FLP as a control mechanism or gifting and transfer or a state planning freeze on value and not really something that we use out, uh, we'd usually use an LLC in a non-familial situation. Got it, restrict it no. through these different types of shares, a separate agreement that restricts it.
1: Yeah. So the LLCs are good for the syndication, the, the funds, because of that flexibility that you're talking about, whereas the LLPs or the FLPs
2: you'd primarily use for control. Correct. The next real question is the difference between companies and these LPs and LLCs, and it's really the charging order protection, which is the lawsuit protection aspect of those instruments. Um, If I get a judgment against somebody and they don't write me a check in the next week, then I'm going to haul them back into court in a few weeks, about six weeks and have what's called a debtor's exam. And that's where we'll say, does anybody owe you money? Do you own a house? Do you own any real estate? uh, Do you have any notes? Uh, Do you have a Rolex? And they will, if you wear it that day, they will actually take it off your arm. How many cars do you have? Oh, you have four cars. Well, you and your spouse only need one car each to get to work to pay me the judgment. We're going to have the marshal tow the other two away and they're not going to tow the old Chevy. They're going to tow the, the new uh, Tesla. So they go through all of these things. And when they say, do you have any companies and where are your bank accounts and how much money's in there? The marshal will go in and take money out of that bank account. All of those are called attachment orders. So an attachment order is a taking order. And they can take all this personal property and real property The only exception are limited partnerships and their progeny, the LLCs, which grew out of the partnership laws. And the partnership laws back to that whole public policy of allowing wealthy investors to give a general partner their money. And if the general partner did something wrong, their interest could be taken, but the rest of the limited partnership interest couldn't be taken. And because Mm. they were innocent parties, an attachment order would not issue from the court, only a charging order and a charge is an instruction. So effectively it's a lien. So instead of being able to take, if I had a corporation, they would be able to either give, let's say I had a, a corporation that was worth $2 million and I had a judgment of $1 million against me the court and the plaintiff would have the option of saying, I want to be 50%, give me 50% of the stock. And now I have a new partner that I hate, they hate me. Or they can come in and take all of my computers and inventory up to the million dollars value. That's an attachment order and they can take the company stock or the assets in it. But if I had a limited partnership that was worth $2 million, They could only put a lien against that $1 million. They can't take it. They cannot step into my shoes Mm. and control it. But the charge says if distributions are made, then any distributions to any partner that has a judgment against them has to go to the court to satisfy this judgment. So it tends to force, not always, but the hope is that it forces people into a good settlement for the defendant, a good settlement, uh, we'll pay you a half a million dollars. Cause you're going to have to wait for me to die. You're going to have to wait for distributions and therefore you want to wait to that. And especially, uh, malicious lawsuits or contingency fee lawsuits where the people don't have any money. They don't want to wait for that. They'll take yeah. the lesser settlement. But if I'm really wealthy and say, I don't, care whether I get it. My kids will eventually get it because at some point somebody's going to die in the partnership and then my kids will get it. And I'm getting 10% interest, which I can't make in the marketplace right now. So I'm willing to wait. That's not very often. So a charging order is very powerful in the lawsuit protection scheme. So
1: you said that with the LLPs, they can't step into your shoes. Is that the same with the LLCs? They can't step into your shoes?
2: Yes, they cannot.
1: Okay. So, so similar protections. Now let's apply it to California though. Let's say that you have an LLC in California and you don't get the charging order protection. You did not have an irrevocable trust. Could they theoretically at that point, step into your shoes if it's a single member LLC?
2: Yes, they would. That's exactly the problem. So that's why if you don't want to put your children on, or you don't want to put an irrevocable trust for yourself. Because not only would that get you the charging order because you have an irrevocable trust, which is not you, even if you set it up and even if you are the beneficiary, but we would normally give, let's say in a married couple, 1% each to husband and wife, only 1% percent's at risk because the trust doesn't drive cars, so it can't have an accident. It can enter into contracts, but we're going to make sure that it doesn't enter into any contracts other than with you and you're not going to sue yourself. So we just restricted the charging order to one or two percent, which is the minimus of the value that's in there.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Now we have a lot of high net worth clients, and I'm assuming a lot of high net worth folks that listen to this podcast, they're investing in syndications and real estate syndications and funds, you know, putting 50K in, getting a K1 back at the end of the year, getting distributions. Would you recommend that they go into those investments either through an irrevocable trust or through an LLC?
2: Absolutely. Where the protection would be is if they had some lawsuit from some other apartment that's not in the syndication, and they were able yeah. to the corporate veil, or they had a car accident, or a business deal uh, that they're involved with goes south, then that means that creditor can say, "I want to attach," you know, that portion. Of that payout from the syndication. And the syndications usually have so many people that you can't turn off the spigot because some people say, you know, if three college mates or five college mates were in the LLC and say, hey, I've got this lawsuit coming or I've got this judgment against me, everybody has other income streams to live by. Let's stop the distributions because otherwise my distribution, your distributions won't be affected. Mine's going to go to this rat.
1: Is that assuming that you invested in or you took a stake in that partnership through your personal name? Because like if you went into that partnership with an LLC and assuming that you're not in California <laughs> and you are protected against charging orders, the syndication could distribute the money to your LLC and you could just not distribute the money to yourself, right? Correct. Cool. Correct okay there we go see so, yeah, i've learned something by talking to a lot of different people and reading a lot of different
2: things and the LLCs, you know in california they're kind of expensive they're a couple thousand dollars but yeah. let's say a nevada llc is just over a thousand dollars a wyoming llc is 980 dollars. they're cheap to get that charging order it's worth any yeah. small investor, much less a larger investor, wants to put these kind of entities.
1: Into- we talk to clients about that every once in a while, and you know we're not attorneys, so we'll say, you know, here go talk to attorneys about the actual structure. This is what makes sense from a tax perspective. I'm going to talk to the attorney about the the legal side. They always come back like shocked with like fees and all that, and we're like, well. You know, it's really, it, you're not, you're not going to realize the value until until you get to fly beneath that radar when you're getting sued that one time, you know? And then all of a sudden, it's immensely valuable. Uh, it's, it's like an insurance policy, you know? It's, it's setting yourself up now for some future event. God forbid that it happened. You're good to go.
2: Yeah. And also, if five people are getting together to form an LLC, that is not going to be, even if it's Wyoming, is not going to be 980. Because all five people have different concerns and that has to be, takes the skill of an attorney and it's going to be hourly to draft, you know, interview all the partners and put that into the operating agreement. But one that's just representing you, because we're in the asset protection and privacy business, we've pared down all the costs. We only get like 150 or it doesn't, we don't get much profit out of Forming a $980 LP or LLC because it doesn't have to be, they're just going to get the book because it's them and them or them and their family. They can rewrite the organizational minutes later, operating agreements later if it's necessary. So we're really paring it down to our clients so they can get useful instruments at a reasonable price. Got it.
1: Now, some of our clients, if they're married, they'll form a 50 50. LLC or whatever with their spouse or one. what liability protection are they gaining by forming a partnership versus just one spouse having a single member LLC? And I guess we could probably just apply this to the California example. I'm assuming that the partnership gets that charging order protection, right?
2: Yes. Though, again, state by state, if, yeah. if it's a community property state, and even the non-community property states often have marital interests, irrespective of how it's titled. Uh, but some states have very strong interests. Or somebody might say, this one account is sold and separate property because it was an inheritance. And I'm going to form the trust or the LLC with that money. And if that LLC ends up growing to $5 million, it will retain that Uh, original ownership as being sole and separate. As far as those people that don't have sole and separate property, either through a marital agreement or inheritance, uh, we got to presume in most states, not all, there's going to be community interest, whether it's put in the spouse's name at all. Uh, Let's say in California, where there is absolutely a community uh, uh, interest, whether their name is on it or not, that's between the husband and wife. But there is reason if uh, we have a surgeon and she has high liability practice and her husband is a W-2 employee, they might want to have him legally on title to the LLC. She still has a community interest in the LLC, but if she gets some lawsuit because she left an instrument in somebody then she doesn't have legal title to that. So community property interest is only enforceable between the spouses Hmm. not the third party that's suing. So there's that reason where we can look at the liabilities of individuals that are in the the marital relationship.
1: Fascinating. I have one more question and I'll stop hogging the mic and let Tom go. (laughs) Um, This is awesome, by the way. I love this podcast. This is one of my favorites by far. Um, Why should people... Not use one of those like online generalist LLC setup entity setup companies and go to somebody that's like in the state localized specialized someone
2: like yourself. Uh, I like to say we repair ten dollar haircuts all the time. <laughs> we do too. We have the same answer. That's awesome. All right, good. And and we make more money repairing that haircut. Than giving a haircut from the get-go that looks good.
1: <laughs> you know, people ask us that too. They're like, well, I could go use like the online stuff, the, the, the block, you know, and it's like you could. And then in four years from now,
2: you're well, going to come back. <laughs> and what a lot of people don't realize that go online and say, oh, for $50, I can incorporate those. Uh, what they do is they, they send you the articles. They haven't registered it or anything else. Oh, you want that? Oh, we'll register it. It's these fees plus our fees, you know, the state fees and these fees. Oh, you want an operating agreement. Oh, it's, you know, $450. Oh, you want a little corporate kit, not just the basic, you want the whole thing. And then you end up spending $1,200 anyway. So you got to beware of those lost leaders online. They just... Interesting. So so if you're just going
1: to get the articles there, the thing that you're missing there is just that you're not even getting the, the company filed. Exactly. You're getting it filed. I mean, theoretically, you could go and file it yourself probably in the same amount of time for half the price. So if people are using the online stuff Are they really kind of missing, like, I guess, like the key foundational pieces of it? Like, I I mean, I'm assuming that I could go, I I live in North Carolina, so I could go to the North Carolina Secretary of State site, set up an LLC like that, and call myself good. But I'm missing the foundational stuff like the operating agreement, right? Like, what what else would I be missing in that case?
2: Well, the operating agreement and also uh, issuing a subscription agreement, so it's technically put in your name uh, depending on what kind of entity is it does it need resolutions to do the bank statements to Got open it. a bank account and the resolutions on carrying out certain types of business uh ledgers of ownership um i think more important especially if it's a single member llc or single member anything it's really is that I mean, part of it is analyzing what's your objective and do you have the right business tool for what you're trying to accomplish. So it's not just getting something online.
1: Well, I think that's a good, that's a really good distinction too, because it's the same argument that we try to make to to our clients. You're not just getting a tax return. Yeah, you're getting a tax return and we're doing it right, especially compared to the folks that are not niched in real estate, right? So we're not going to miss the common things that they might. But we're bringing this extra level of advisory as well. Why can you or can you not do X, Y, and Z? And you're saying kind of like the same thing. You're bringing that advisory piece and you're saying, well, what are you really trying to accomplish here? Does an LLC actually make, yeah, you can go set it up for $50, but does that make sense? Does that accomplish what you're trying to do at the end of the day? Right. And the online, they're not going to do that. They're just going to take your money. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Good stuff. All right, Tom, you can take over, man. I'm exhausted.
0: All right. So, you know, this has definitely been one of our longer podcasts, but as Brandon said before, probably one of our better ones for sure. So we can kind of cut out a little bit of this stuff. I know you, you know, Kevin's been with us for a little bit now. And we definitely appreciate the time, but what is your favorite tax strategy or the best tax advice you ever
2: received? that I ever received? Um, it was what I saw and I got advice later, but I, it was by my inquiry. I noticed every single wealthy person that I had as a client, a little bit of wealth or a lot of wealth, had real estate in their portfolio. And particular people that were W 2'd and were either able to save or they were higher paid and got disposable income and saved went into real estate at some point and. There were a good many of those that left their industry because they were making more money from their real estate than they were from their salaries. And often then, then they had a money machine that they weren't having to push the ball. Then they might have started some other business that was a passion versus a salary. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I got to do that. And it was I started to ask my clients, as well as friends that had real estate, to gear up into that. And amazingly enough, my fear worked to my advantage because my wife and I were able to jump in essentially in 2010, and uh, we did really well.
0: That's great advice. You know, just to piggyback off of that, you know, we see that all the time on our side of the business, too. I mean, I, I know several tech clients of ours. Leaving uh, Silicon Valley to get into to real estate, and um, well, at the same time we see doctors doing that sometimes, and then, and you know, one of our clients, the thing I was speaking to, their goal is to use their current job, use where they're at to invest in the real estate, get, use the real estate's financial freedom, but not to go chill out on the beats necessarily, but they have a passion project, like you said, to go and pursue after that. So, you know, I think the game maybe for some people really start after they build that wealth from real estate, um, which, you know, real estate allows you to do. So definitely agree with you there. And um, last question for you, what is the best way for our listeners
2: to get in contact with you or your business if they wanted to do so? Okay. Um, our phone number is 858-755-6672-858-755-6672. 858-755-6672. Um, probably Bridget would be the best first contact here, and that's at Bridget at Tress Law, T-R-E-S-P, L-A-W dot com. And uh, look at our uh, website, trustdayandassociates.com, and uh, read up on who we are and how long we've been around. Our firm is in the top two in the country for lawsuit protection, Uh, not out of, I'd love to say, particular wisdom, but it was just good timing because I started those books before anybody did, right on the heels of the Hague Convention being uh, signed. And it kind of pushed me up to the top of the heap in the continuing ed world to lawyers that needed to learn about it. That's uh, how we got to the top of the heap. (laughs) But we've seen it all. We work for little moms and pops as well as big, sophisticated, wealthy actors and ballplayers and everything in between. We've seen it. We've seen concerns. We can deal with really peculiar family situations. Uh, We've seen it all, so uh, your clients would be in good hands.
0: It's great to hear, and we definitely appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, Like you said, this is probably one of the better episodes we're going to be putting out, one of the more favorite episodes maybe, and um, it's going to be released uh, next week. So uh, thanks again for coming on the show today
2: oh yeah thank you very much uh i love this and i, I love uh, podcasts where i particularly don't know where it's going because it just turns up a bunch of rocks and we get you know get a lot of uh, diverse good information out to uh, the clients
0: absolutely that's our goal
2: awesome have a great afternoon
0: you too
1: thanks for listening to today's show